Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Christina. Oh, wait, uh, 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 I have mints. Would you stop having okay. mints in your mouth? Jeez. It's Nicorette because I. Oh, cigarettes. Okay, I talk start, again. start again. <laughs> Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Christina Hoff Summers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And today we kind of want to get into sex and dating, which is. And some- sex parties. Which is something I don't think. No, okay. I don't think I we can really back. do it this age. It <laughs> doesn't play so large. Doesn't want if... to, but Mandy Stott Miller did it for us. We don't have to do it. She did it. She went to the parties. She was the it girl in New York City, a writer, a girl about town, writing a dating column for the New York Post. And she's author of a new memoir called Unwifeable. But calling it a memoir is like calling an explosion. A story of, a oh. Small, <laughs> you know, just a little memoir. Small, small little <laughs> campfire. It was, to me, reading this, it is, it is as graphically honest a book as I think I've ever read, and maybe more than Story but of O to you know, those who so would or not So graphically remember. honest that it, I found it heroic. I, I ended up admiring her. I stipulate the mother in me wanted to protect her and tell her, darling, don't do this. And you're a wonderful girl. Fortunately, she saved herself. And, and, right. And she found a wonderful man who helped that process along. But she was a raging alcoholic, a drug addict. Sex addict. Yeah. Self-described love and sex addict. Went to orgies. We'll talk about those. She called up men at like two in the morning and she'd be plastered and on cocaine and and, and and back then you could even just call craigslist and she, she would, would put have, it on craigslist and she would she walk through times square with i mean that was part of her it was all part of the column no no this part was not in the column she wrote this column for the new york post where she'd write about dating and it was called about last night but in her column she she did a much more she was not doing this she was leading a much more fake romantic life in her column. No, I thought the column was... No. no. Well, oh. it didn't document it as, as this did. And it was said, it was like sex in the city on acid plus cocaine plus right. batshit craziness. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Christina, reading or watching something like this, but whenever I've read like a Hemingway novel and, you know, they start drinking at 10 a.m. and then they move to the Italian hills and they have four more bottles of Chianti <laughs> and then they're back on the square and they're drinking and yeah, they I'm move over there asleep. to the bar. Well, no, I'm already feeling sick. Reading this was like one of those things where you almost couldn't take what and she was doing what without was feeling doing. sick yourself. But yet she somehow came through this flaming years of what she described as being a hot the mess. heart of darkness of sex heart of and she and she pulled herself out of it like a phoenix and she's now become she's now become this sober <laughs> she stresses that she's now sober I don't get that how can you never have a glass of wine well ever? in her case i think it's a good thing no it's definitely a good thing except that how do you do it i don't get it well she she's come through this and the book is actually heart-wrenching and moving and obviously very gripping. And for anybody who's in trouble, serious trouble, read this book. You'll feel better about yourself. And she shows the way out. Yeah, she had a line at the end, and I think it also appeared at the beginning of the book, where she said, if you look deep inside every woman, you will find a black box that records the wreckage of her past relationships. I don't have that black box. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I thought it was sort of sad, right? Like, do women only deal with no, wreckage men and it. men just men move it. on? I just married early, so I, I escaped it. I think that's a little bit of the secret. I, I got married, I think, or, as you know, at 25. 
And I sometimes wonder if I hadn't gotten married at 25. Right. Would this have happened? This is would okay. Me? So you admit this kind of thing could have happened. Oh, for sure. And I think it happens to so many no, but young you women. Wouldn't, you wouldn't have gone to the dangerous places. She I don't did. think I would have called Craigslist or gone to those orgies. No, no, I don't think so. But we um, hope not. <laughs> I, I don't think so. But that sense of being lost, of always trying to try on these new identities, and these new identities, and then she would men. Try to impress men. Mandy, this brilliant, beautiful girl, but she would impress them by showing, "Hey, I'm more of a you know a rule breaker, transgressor than you are." Yeah, let's go to this sex party, and I'll do this and that. And, and she described it as feminism. Like she said, this was another book that, uh, sorry, another quote from the book that I really found interesting. She said, I wasn't just a self-destructive exhibitionist whose crippling neuroses manifested in navel-gazing and random acts of implosion. Instead, I told myself I was a feminist. I was empowered going to these <laughs> yeah, orgies. empowered by being overtaken by two men at once and then, you know. Well, anyway, let's bring her on and hear what she has to say. Can't wait. Hi, Mandy. It's Christina. Welcome to Femsplainers. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor, and I am so grateful for you sharing that story that I wrote on the incel community from the Daily Beast. That was really kind of you. It really helped get it out to a wider community, and you didn't have to do that, so I'm very grateful. That was an amazing article. I, I've never... Thank you. I, I was, it was so unexpected, but I thought, all right, it's the Daily Beast. We're going to hear about how terrible these misogynists are and so forth. And you didn't do that. You approached it with this open heart. <laughs> sort of, it's almost as if you could identify with some of their brokenness. Yes. I, I was just talking to, I, I have, I would say, a group of friends who all fall into the Camille Paglia branch of, of, of friendship where they are contrarians. They think that the greatest gift that you can give to feminism is to critique it rather than indulge it. And so through this kind of secret society friendship, starting with Carrie Smith, who is someone who wrote a medium piece that went viral when Jordan Peterson tweeted it out called How I Left the Cult of SJW, I have developed a support network of women who have supported me in what my experience in media has been this past year since I first wrote a piece about being married to a Trump supporter and what a brutal awakening that was to the reality of regressive leftism that I did not realize existed. And I think that in realizing that that was the case, realizing that you just aren't supposed to articulate certain things, you are supposed to dehumanize at all costs the enemy, which is anyone who doesn't fall in line with groupthink, and that you just will be censored if you, I mean, yeah, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait one second. Did you say your husband is a Trump supporter? My husband it, is a Trump supporter. Oh, okay. He is, uh, I think we've got to go on now to interview. Them. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Mandy. Mandy. Uh, oh, I, I think we lost the connection. Christina, we lost the connection. Mandy, we want to talk to you very much about incel and now you're, you're, you, I'm, and, and, and this is one of your tabloid headlines. I'm married to a Trump supporter, but yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you that that is my most popular piece that I ever wrote when I was doing a column for New York magazine. And 
I was not able to write a follow-up article to that, even though I get emails about it every week. I probably could now for the Daily Beast, but when Trump won, there was no interest in any... I think the only article I could have written as a follow-up would have been, I have left my husband. Um, em- embrace, embrace me, world. He's, he's a Nazi. You were right. Thank you to all the random people on Twitter who told me I should divorce him and that I was complicit in creating Nazis around the world. I mean, just that kind of an extremist take on it. I've always hated just, you know, people who subscribe to whatever the kind of hive mind talking points are. And this has been a very interesting time for me in seeing how people have zero self-awareness of the fact that relentless condescension and snark suddenly doesn't change the minds of a middle American in Iowa, you know, for some reason that doesn't appeal to him to be called a stupid racist Nazi all the time. For some reason that that isn't changing his mind. And it's it's been kind of, I think, a mission of mine to try to bridge the divide that has happened in our, our culture right now. Well, this is, uh, and to bring this back to your book, which we very much want to talk about. It was hilarious and well, Thank heartbreaking you. and well, so truthful and anyway well it was also it was also not your usual female self-help book trajectory and this is interesting right. to hear this sort of background of politics because as i understand it the usual trajectory is i was married to a fill in the blank wrong cruel man left him realized i had to discover myself and then i became happier and stronger you know or whatever on my own without men and you went through such a time, which we will discuss, but there's at no point in it, and even though you have, you know, reason to, that you, you don't cast blame, there's, there's not a lot of self-pity, you take full responsibility for your behavior. And, oh, 100%. And, and, but yet, as much as you blame yourself, it's like you're a one-woman Me Too movement, you know, of, of encounters beginning with losing your virginity by being raped by a male cousin. And that's how the book kind of kicks off. And it right. doesn't get better for a long time from there. Yeah, I think that I flirted with different, as Amy Chua might say, you know, the kind of comfort of echo chamber tribalism and trying on different costumes and identities and trying to find my people. And I think that I only eventually found that if you reject framing everything through ideology, you can ultimately find what is the greatest truth of all, which is personal accountability. When I was writing this book, I wanted to portray myself in as brutal a light as possible because to me, that is what a woman is. A woman is capable of being just as much of a narcissistic, self-seeking, manipulative, trying to fuck to get ahead shithead as, as a man can be. To try and portray women as just only being these angelic, virtuous creatures who, who, who must be put on this pedestal while, while being coddled with all of these self-protections that men, for some reason, don't deserve 
is an insult to the idea of equity feminism in the first place. It is, it is, it is trying to, it, it is creating this, this great lie of what it means to be a sexual, nuanced, complicated creature who sometimes is very unlikable, who sometimes makes a lot of mistakes, who sometimes is a very active participant in abusive situations, in making bad decisions, and that you don't have to look at everything as being the patriarchy doing you in. You can sometimes look at it as being, oh, you know what, that was me doing myself in, and look at what my accountability was in this. Mandy, you grew up with a very difficult father who had been wounded in Vietnam. In fact, he'd been shot in the face and was subsequently blind. And then you eventually married a man, the comedian Pat Dixon, who himself was almost murdered by a woman who pulled a gun on him in a restaurant. Did their experiences have any impact on you? That's the really wild thing about what eventually happened to me after kind of resigning that I was just going to enjoy my life as a wacky spinster with lots of stories to uh, cuddle with late at night, was I met someone who actually appreciated me for who I was. I met another lone wolf rather than a kind of like terrified pack ideologue, someone who thought for himself. And something that was fascinating was that he spoke red flag fluently. And he never saw in me, he never saw in me some of the warning signs that had happened with, there was a great clip of him on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening. He just went on that show and he told the story of Laura, the woman who almost murdered him. And it completely changed the way that he dealt with women. And it also changed the way that he understood that double standard that happens, which is that when he's on stage and he's doing comedy and he talks about how a woman almost murdered him, the immediate reaction is people will call out from the audience, what did you do? Right, right. And, and he jokes, you know, thanks for blaming the victim, by the way. I was just, you know, what was happening was I was wearing my sexy murder slut outfit, <laughs> you know, uh, why don't you ask me what I was wearing? And it, it is really fascinating just how we don't ever question those double standards. And I, and, I, and, I, and I do think that, you know, with, with my dad, with growing up with a combat vet who is almost this just cartoonish embodiment of alpha masculinity, I have always had this extreme empathy with the burdens of maleness and the weight that is carried and the contrary expectations that are put on them, especially in society now, where the goalposts are constantly getting moved of you watch the view in the morning and it is, well, be sure and um, ask for triple consent. And then you watch The Bachelor in the evening and the woman is rejecting a man saying, he asked me to for permission before I kissed him. That is just such a turnoff. <laughs> and what it is to try and figure out, you know, how to be a man in, in, in the current environment 
and and I and I've always I've always just I think I think I was aware very early on through growing up with seeing how people reacted to my father, how they would say one thing when they were in a public setting of we need to support our veterans, we need to take care of, but then face to face they couldn't they couldn't bear to be around the very ugly, very messy head injured <laughs> consequences of, of, of what war and reality is. You would, you would rather just be able to be in the safety of propaganda rather than in the, the messy nuance where there are no heroes and villains. There are just people whose humanity trumps all. Well, let's just take it back to your book because you know, and the book is called Unwifeable, and you can get it at unwifeable.com. Yes, I'm, I'm falling That's down on plug. our hosting <laughs> plugs, <laughs> no, but I'll yeah. make sure we do them. No, I but also, it. 80% of your book, so obviously you identify with men and are very sympathetic, which is great, but there's no getting around that 80% of the book, no matter what your culpability is for these situations, that there are men behaving terribly and exploiting, exploitively. And a lot of this book came out from a column you used to write for the New York Post called About Last Night, where you would go on dates and you would write about them. And then you said this, I'm just going to read something you wrote. The guy who edits my column knows just how unlike any kind of rom-com fairy tale my life is. Unlike Carrie Bradshaw, I'm essentially a joke eviscerated on Gawker and an embarrassment to the guy I'm dating exclusively. It's not like in the movies where the guys are beating down your door. The guys want sex, and then they want you to disappear forever, or at least keep your trap shut. Isn't it awfully hard out there for women, too? Oh, God. Oh, 100%. Well, I I think that one of the ways that it's hard out there for women is that we don't recognize that we're going to be okay in spite of the shame that we carry with ourselves throughout our life. I mean, I think that it took me so many extensive public humiliations to finally realize just how little anything mattered for me to find a true sense of self-esteem and, and boundaries. I'm strong enough, and I would, have, I would have, I think, found that my identity was not going to be something that was completed by a man. I was so unable to realize that everything that I wanted in life was within me all along if I just learned to work on a personal sense of self and self-esteem rather than trying to get it through either the validation of women or the validation of, of men. And I think that that is where a lot of women screw themselves over is by just wanting to fall into some kind of if a, a framework of what they are told through the romance, you know, self-help cottage industries of, you know, be it the rules or why men marry bitches or the fact that you have to follow a certain kind of script in order to be taken seriously and in, and, and in order to be someone who fits on one end of the Madonna whore dichotomy when the reality is is that society just isn't that way anymore unless we are imposing those kinds of paradigms on ourselves. And I was very much, you know, imposing a paradigm by writing a kind of aspirational 
wannabe, you know, low-rent weirdo, six-foot-two, Carrie Bradshaw dating column ripoff, I was having to kind of deliver the goods every weekend of, you know, here is my, here is my fantasy come to life rather than actually stopping for a second and looking at, well, what do I want? What do I think my value is? I always had the looking glass self version of self-esteem, which was that my, my worth was determined what, by what I imagined others thought of me. And, you know, not to just draw it immediately back to what we were talking about with the whole, you know, Overton window shifting in, in, in society, but I think that that is I think that is part of, of the reason that so many people fall into these extreme divisive ideologies is because they are terrified of what other people are going to think of them if they do not virtue signal the right way. If they dare question something that is supposed to be beyond question. And I think that that is a huge problem for, for, for women is that we are believing that we have to subscribe to just, you know, one prominent ideology in order to get acceptance by society or from, from women. Because, I mean, the reality is, is that, yes, it's, it's very hard to be a woman, no doubt. There are so many predatory, awful, exploitive men who want to treat you a certain way. But, you know, a lot of times, we as a culture are enabling that by not calling out what's happening in society right now and acknowledging that there are problems with the attempt to just completely obliterate masculinity and looking at it as being, you know, a social disease, but instead there's no one left. I mean, I, get, I can't tell you how many times I have gotten emails and texts from women who just ask me, I can't find anyone to date. And then meanwhile, you look at their social media and they're saying, if a guy asks me out three times in a row, that's sexual assault. And they're wondering why no one is dating them. And it's just, you know, I mean, it's like everyone is being indoctrinated to this just utter insanity. I know of, and men are afraid to be funny, let alone take you out on a date. You know, just, just there's so much policing and this aura of disapproval in male demonization of males, this outrage feminism. Do you think that it's going to go away soon or are we stuck here for a long time? You mentioned some of your friends are starting to be critical, which, as you said, so importantly, that. Feminism needs criticism. It's, you don't honor the women's movement by treating it as sacrosanct and, oh, thou shalt not criticize. And now it's moved into this fainting couch mode where women are treated, it seems there are many feminists that want to pretend that we're just these damsels in distress with, without any personal responsibility. Do you think that we're moving away from that? Do you well, I that? think I think we're I think we're at probably the most critical juncture that there is. And I think that currently, you know, I saw a Carl Bernstein in, in talk with the brilliant, wonderful John Avalon, who's editor-in-chief of uh, the Daily Beast. And something that okay. Carl Bernstein said to John was that we are currently in a cold cultural civil war and that there is no denying that. And I think that right now we are at the precipice of 
determining what is going to happen next. And I and I think that I think the fact that so many people are afraid to speak aloud any kind of criticism or anything that is, you know, not kind of like approved by the general hive mind consensus is a really, really scary place to be in. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of traditional censorship. It's a matter of widespread self-censorship. And I think, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that we're at a juncture where if more people speak out and say, oh, you know what? Everything isn't as black and white as is being made to be in culture. Here's the problem that that I have with how the media is portraying women and how they're portraying men and just the, the idea that the dehumanization of people is widely celebrated. I mean, I mean, just the idea of calling someone a garbage person is, boy, that'll, that'll get those likes rolling in on Facebook and Twitter, is if you call out someone as just being, you know, a garbage human being. And that's how we are in this mess in the first place, is because you know, it, it's just this outrage call-out culture where there is zero tolerance for mistake and there is this disconnect from the reality of what it is to be a human being, which is, you know, someone who is filled with a lot of flaws and that includes, and that includes women. And I think that by more people speaking out and holding themselves accountable and saying, oh, you know what, actually, I framed something this way because I thought it would get me sympathy. Or I, you know, I mean, mean, I'll I'll give you an example. I sent out, I would say, I would say I sent out about two pitches initially when my book was coming out. And I wrote in the subject line because I was always, you know, trying to think of what is the big picture way to market something. And I wrote, my Me Too before the Me Too movement is in this book. And after I sent it out, I just, I felt this kind of just nasty inauthenticity where I realized, wait a minute, I'm not saying, yeah, um, some of these guys did things that are not good. Having sex with you when you're blackout drunk, for example, and you wake up with someone having sex on you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a case where, I mean, that is just, I mean, that is straight up sexual assault, 100%. But also looking at the personal responsibility of the fact that I, I set myself up for that. Did I deserve it? Of course not. Much better men took care of me and said, I'm not going to, I'm taking you home. You're listening to Mandy Stottmiller, author of Unwifable, a memoir on the Femsplainer podcast. Mandy is also a columnist for New York Magazine. You're a girl talk columnist for Penthouse and host of the comedy podcast, News Whore. Please join the Femsplainers. Yes, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us 
at femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, femsplainers. One of the points that you make in your book, and this is where I thought the fairy tale of being alone for the rest of your life and accepting it, that was not what made you happy in the end. And you, even though at some point you sort of accepted that you might be, as you say, this eccentric older woman cuddling her stories, you did meet what I think you would describe as your soulmate in Pat Dixon. And he was a guy that what made him special was that he called you on all of your bullshit, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. And he said, I, you know, all the posturing and yeah, yeah, enough of these fan dances. I want to get to know the real you. And in a way, he brought out the real you. So you could look at some of your redemption. It's not just in your amazing strength and courage and ability to turn yourself around, but also you were helped through this journey by a man, which isn't supposed to happen in these (laughs) movies right internalized massage you should have just gone and had a baby on your own actually man told the world to go to hell (laughs) you're happy but instead by the way your book apart from being hysterical and and, i mean hysterically funny and hysterical is a love story when it got to the love story part i was so it was i almost cried can i read can i read the note that pat gave you on your wedding night and you guys did in fact get married in a comedy club which i think is a first this isn't this doesn't include mention of the Blowjobs. No. No. Okay. Okay. He didn't put that oh, in his yeah. wedding yeah, note. That, 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 it, yeah, not, right, it was right. not in the wedding. Yeah. <laughs> in the, well, in the wedding <laughs> note that I read in the book. Okay. I want to keep it. It says, it says, dear Mandy, what a beautiful experience these past years have been. You know who you are. You have a heart filled with love for yourself and others. And you only partner with a man who has earned the right to be with you. Oh, and that's actually, that's a note that I wrote myself when I went through. Yeah, he gave me that note. Oh, that that was the part. That was the note you wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, So I wrote this letter to myself in 2012 when I went through Karen's Breakthrough Workshop, which was intensive group therapy for five days. And it culminated in a, a psychodrama where you kind of, try to reintegrate some of your past traumas. And it was, that was an exercise and I was afraid to look at it. And it was so fascinating to see that my vision for myself and the, and the note that I wrote to myself, it came to fruition by trying to hold true to that relentless personal accountability. So, that, so this was, I'm giving Pat all the credit for your eloquence is what I'm doing. It sounds like, <laughs> but he read this. <laughs> but he read this on your wedding night, so I guess it was to say because you'd been mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Yes, yes, yeah. It was. It was a way to take a moment and look within at what I had accomplished. That sometimes it's really hard to. It's sometimes really hard to do because you're you're moving so quickly and you're often just looking at how people are viewing the external view of what you've done and what you've accomplished and to actually look at it in the context of your own desire for personal realization is sometimes just seems like this masturbatory solipsist oh god solipsistic yeah there you go thank you exercise in 
just self-reflection when in reality it is, you know, one of the most important things that you can do is to set goals for yourself and then to see, you know, how you've realized them rather than just surrounding yourself with sycophantic yes-men who are telling you, you know, you go girl, you did nothing wrong. And that's something that he's definitely done for me is, yeah, calling me out on my shit. I do want to talk a little more about the incels, but Danielle's eager to talk about the wild party. So what well, is your I, question about the parties? I don't know that I have a question about the party because the parties were actually, it was like... Sex a, party. Oh, it was beyond, I mean, it made girls look like PG. <laughs> and something that's on the sex Disney the Channel. Was, yeah, Sex in the City, city would be was, like Cinderella. But what were you thinking? Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the church lady here. The church lady. What? No, like... Thank well, you, it young actually, lady. It actually... I think it actually goes back to the insult story and why I actually related to some of those kids is, you know, they talk about in the insult community, the idea of being blackpilled. And by the way, um, we will have to explain to those who haven't taken all these different colored pills exactly what the incel community is. Yeah, 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 happy to. Incel is short for involuntary Involuntary. celibate. So not celibate by choice. They want to get laid and they can't or don't want to. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's a kind of uh, reinforcing nihilism, where you have this freedom that comes with realizing that the game is rigged, and so you hate anyone who is blue pilled. And just to quickly explain the different pills, yeah, red pill is essentially kind of MRA ideology. I mean, the whole thing comes from the Matrix, which is that you're offered either the blue pill, which is you will have a happy, complacent life where you never get to see the game behind the game, how the sausage is made, (laughs) what's really really going on. Yeah, right. (laughs) 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 The opposite, the opposite. Or you take the red pill, which is a tougher journey, but you see that everything is, you, you you see the ugliness behind the matrix. And that's something that has been adopted by a lot of people who don't just hold feminism accountable, but actively kind of, I would say, they are the kind of like mirror inverse of an extremely radical feminist in that they are a radical meninist where they think that it is men versus women and that women are, I mean, just God, the misogynistic terms are, they almost become hysterical at a certain point. They call women, you know, roasties because the vagina looks like uh, roast beef. And women aren't just women, they are femoids because they're not even human. And there, there's just this entire vocabulary that is used for how evil women are. And in a way, it's understandable how we got there, because when you look at the very extreme feminist viewpoints, it's like, is that alienating to, to men? Yeah, probably. And if you're, you know, angry and alienated, sometimes people get very radicalized into something that is the exact opposite of, of that. And then blackpilled is basically recognizing that the entire game is rigged and so you might as well just embrace total nihilism, total self-destruction, and there are no rules. There is no moral compass. There is no hope. And I think that in my 
life. I think that right before I got sober, I got sober in 2010. And by the way, I love your cocktails on the podcast and I am all for drinking. I think there are just certain people who a lot of times they're super fun, but they have that addict personality, you know, and and they just... You know, I, I, had, un- that, I had that addict personality for smoking. And oh, yeah, me too. Oh, my God. They, been, they, say, they say, you know, you're an alcoholic or you have to suspect you're an alcoholic if you had a pleasurable experience of your first drink. And I, <laughs> I didn't like my first drink. I was like, oh, this is so bad. I mean, I drank it anyway because right. I wanted the, to be, you know, I was talking about when I was in high school. But cigarette, my first cigarette was one of my dad's Chesterfields and it had no right. filter and I smoked it and I loved it. And I just had this mad fixation. Uh, and when I quit smoking, and it was it was the hardest thing I ever did. Drinking, oh, it's so hard. Isn't it hard? Well, at the end, I'm going to ask you, because I know... Now? Do you still smoke? I, I, I've been smoking since... God, I started smoking when I was writing the book, because to be going back and reading some of these emails and some of these journals, I mean... Yeah, you need a cigarette. Well, it was just... I'm surprised you didn't go on just, to heroin or something. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not, if you're sober, opioids, if opioids. you're sober, does that mean you can't take any drugs? No. I mean, it depends on pot, what kind of... Adderall? <laughs> that's Adderall. Well, time. pot is... I mean, that, that's an interesting... I mean, it's a whole, it's a whole it's a kind whole of thing. debate. Yeah, to me, right. but, but But to me, if I smoked weed, you know, you would find me you know, back to, you know, fucking the other half of New York that I hadn't fucked yet. You know, like I just, I, I, I just, I am such a pleasure addict and I... So you need positive just, addictions. Did you find positive addictions? I need positive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole idea, the whole, you know, Jungian like archetypes of the fact that there is light and dark attributes to everything. Well, there are light and dark attributes to the addict personality. And, you know, the light attribute is that you are passionate and you are obsessive and you will not stop until you complete something. But if you're doing that with, you know, uh, drinking or, or sex, it doesn't always have like the best results. Yeah, you know? it doesn't leave um, anywhere. But if you're addicted to work or exercise, that can be good. We're talking to Mandy Statmiller, author of the new book, Unwifeable. With all this talk of incels and addictions, we never really got to the sex parties. The name of the party that I went to a couple of times, it was run by One Leg Up. And there's so many, there's so many different kind of like sex party and, you know, swinger type. I mean, people sometimes think like that I'm, you know, a a swinger or a polyamorist and I'm not, you know, I... Someone said you were a feral... Maybe you said a feral. I, I wrote that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to. I like to. Uh, I mean, it's a. It's a cheap. It's a cheap trick to cut criticism off by you know putting out the bleakest point that someone could yeah, by framing okay. yourself that way first. But uh, I also think it's funny because I think that like to poke through the idea that someone can uh, trap you and ruin your life by calling you a word, it shows you just how we all live in this 
stultified fear of what society is going to say of us and how much that is hurting us. I had lunch with someone recently who was talking about the importance of banning misogyny everywhere. And I said, you know, I mean, a lot of the humor that has provided me the greatest relief in life is completely misogynist, you know, the same way that like misandrist and misanthropic. I think that men and women should be able to joke about each other. And if you go back in the 40s and 50s, and there was this relentless ragging on one another. And if we lose that, then the only way you communicate is through, I don't know, like misery and and anger and recrimination. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's through. I mean, everyone talks all the time about, you know, privilege checking, but no one talks about the idea of there being victim privilege, you know, and, and the fact that you become this untouchable force where nothing can be questioned. Yes, it used to be that Anita Hill or women who spoke out about sexual harassment, they were completely demonized, you right. know, but, but, but the culture has changed. And all you get is just lauding of, of people as being beyond criticism. You get, I mean, nobody's been, beyond criticism. This is what I don't understand about this. Yeah. They say, oh, believe women. Well, I think any woman that comes forward with an account of sexual abuse should be respected and treated kindly and with understanding, but no one has the right to be believed because especially when it was going to implicate someone else in a in a serious crime, there has to be some presumption of innocence for the accused. Can I go go back to the incels? Because we kind of digress from there and I still think that we need incels for idiots because otherwise, you know, we could be talking about neo Nazis. I think people who are not sort of plugged into this debate don't yeah, realize no, that this love, is a, this is not it, a broader yeah. subculture that has erupted, as we've seen, almost like jihadists in Toronto, a incel guy driving his truck into a crowd of completely innocent bystanders. I'm from Toronto, by the way, so. But I wonder, <laughs> here's my question. Was he an incel? I mean, he may have been associated with it, but he was a, a sociopath or he was a... Well, I think he had serious psychological issues, as as some of these guys do, obviously. But you talk about that your sympathy for them derives from your own background and ability to turn yourself around. And in this great piece you did on incels that we cited earlier in the Daily Beast, Beast, you said that these guys seem not so much a product of toxic masculinity as a failure of masculinity itself. And that you said, essentially, reaching someone entrenched within a near-fanatical belief system is often impossible because ego will put up a fight to the death in order not to deal with the psychic pain of feeling that everything that has been done up until this point has been wrong, but it is possible. So these are men who are cliche in their parents' basements online, feeling that they can't get a date, getting angrier and angrier, getting misogynistic, as you say, but feel that there's no way out for them. Is Is that right? There's a side to people who really embrace uh, black pill nihilism, and they can be very dangerous where they want to dox you, dox your family, and just they have nothing to lose. They are psychopaths. And I, you know, I have no desire to engage in that party train, you know, but there was a man who I listened to and who I read his post, and I saw that this was someone who to me, just seemed like a young man who 
seemed kind of reasonable and seemed kind of alienated. And as someone who has found complete life-affirming reprieve in Gallo's humor, I can understand why you would laugh at the idea of the answer being in, I mean, people, people used to joke about, you know, when I worked at the New York Post, people would say, oh, don't worry, when I'm coming back, you know, you'll be spared. Meaning just, you know, that feeling that you feel when you just, you hate life, you feel like everything is stacked against you. And then why not laugh about it? And yeah, exactly. That's what what was brilliant in this article is he, and you interviewed this young man, he had uh, been abandoned by his father and his mother. And then horribly well and he was he was yeah he was bullied and i think anyone who had a hard time growing up i certainly had a hard time growing up i mean i was i'm six two i shot up at an early age and i you were such a babe in new york at those parties but in high school you weren't well no i mean i just i because i mean have you ever met someone who just their self-loathing is radioactive and you almost can't even stand to be around it because you feel like you'll be infected <laughs> by this kind of leprosy that is like the hatred of self that was the kind of vibe that i think that i used to give off where i mean there's you know there's there's self-effacing jokes and then there's just like that chick needs some fucking therapy yeah. you know <laughs> So no, I, I, you know, I was called Jolly Green Giant and I was... That's also racist, you know, like, you know, making green, fun the fact that you're green. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but so I definitely understood, you know, the idea of that casual cruelty that you are supposed to just ignore. And, but, but the um, thing that is so clear to me is that a lot of boys suffer that too. And girls well, yeah, can exactly. be so and mean. What, and I kind oh of Oh my know, god, oh they my can be god. so mean. Yeah, and, and 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 that is the idea of you know, people say, Oh, you know, cry me a river for a poor white male, you know, and it's like that it's like that great picture of, you know, the two women walking along and the man is going down into the manhole, risking his life, and the women are saying, stop oppressing me. And the guy's oh, like, what? I know, what? what is this? And it, yeah, cry me. And yeah. Uh, and, and it's sort of this, this school of feminism that, has, that is heartless and merciless. And that was not, when I was growing up, feminism was affirmative, and it was about women's liberation, not denigrating or hating men or denying their suffering. We're hanging out with the wonderful Mandy Stoutmiller, author of Unwifeable, a memoir. I, I believe it's on Amazon, Mandy. I believe it's on Ma- yes. Amazon. Yes, if you, if you just, if you type in unwifeablebook.com, it'll take you directly to the Amazon page. And if you type in mandystatmiller.com, it will take you to the Simon & Schuster page that offers all the different book selling options. So you, you have your pick. So- the book as Christina is hilarious and truth telling and batshit crazy in parts <laughs> and yes. totally impossible to put down. I just you, you, sometimes you. it can be onerous having to read books of my friends or people. I mean, and this was the opposite. It was so entertaining. Can, can we talk a little bit now about comedy? Yes, I would love to. Yeah. One, one of the things I was surprised because you've also done stand up, and what I couldn't understand, like as you as you point out, this whole book is about 
this kind of hot mess of self-loathing and insecurity. And yet you would walk up on stand-up comedy clubs in New York on stages, which to me seems the most scary thing one could possibly do, especially if you're insecure. How did you do that? And what made you want to pursue stand-up comedy? I wanted to always put myself in situations that forced me to go outside of my comfort zone. And that has always been a very interesting question to me is, you know, what happens when you lean in to the discomfort and what happens when you lean into the fear? And even, you know, in my book, I mean, boy, did I ever lean into the the idea of unwifable, you know, just doing things that were completely, you know, contributing to the idea of this is what you think I am. Oh, you have no idea. I I can be so much worse. You know, I mean, and it's a very it's a very childish kind of viewpoint, you know, and 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 part of that journey is the self-realization of of recognizing that there is a intelligent form of contrarianism and there is a temper tantrum version of it and getting to 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 that point. On comedy, though, I'm going to say Christina says I'm a total prude. She's a prude. I'm a prude. But one of the things about women in comedy today I'm finding Oh, boy, here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. I cannot take the level of vulgarity. And this is, by the way, true of men and women comics. And I almost feel like the women are imitating some of the male comics. But I didn't like it when Michelle Wolf at the women's, sorry, the women. The, the yeah. White House it has become the dinner. women's correspondent. Um, it's all now the women. No, no, not 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 her political humor, which I thought was fair. But I mean, just the extreme sort of lewd and vulgar language. I know I sound like a grandmother, but I just if you know the top is bringing it down. The way we talk, the way we converse, and when you speak about having to end this cold war between the sexes, I don't know right. that this raunchiness raunchiness really helps unless it's funny. Uh, <laughs> if it's funny, yeah, and she mean, just wasn't. Well, her jokes, some of them were very funny. Some of them were very funny. All right, we but, won't get into her. No, we don't yeah, get into okay. her. But just in general, you know, do, when you do when you do your act, do you still do stand up comedy? I did stand up recently, and I are you very graphic? And I did great, and I did and I did great, which was any dirty words, which was very which was very fun. I think I talked about going to Pornhub and typing in. Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, just. <laughs> all right, no, just, uh, just for know. one second, and I'm not going off on a yeah. tangent, but poor. Uh huh. Go ahead. So I hadn't seen all that much, and I once was. See, no, she's, she's the prude. She's I'm the not prude. a prude. I just. I, 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 no, I like. I'll send, you, I'll send you some. I'll send you some, some links. links. No, I want a pretty uh, 19th century. To, to some Eichenwald uh, tentacle porn, hentai, yeah. Oh, no, tentacles. No. <laughs> it, I t- it was on. It was called Motel Sluts, okay? I turned it <laughs> that on. That sounds dirty. It was like open heart surgery. <laughs> open heart. It was close ups of pulsating body parts. And it I, looked I, like mm-hmm. roast beef. No, I wanted something. I want. I mean,. This is not what women want. I, don't, I mean, men seem to like that, but I think there's a difference. I mean, Bill Maher once said that men and women should never tell one another their fantasies because men will find women's fantasies boring. Women will find men's offensive. Chris, Christopher Hitchens didn't even, he once said he didn't even like to hear a woman swear, which makes him even more prudish than me. That's a little old. Thing. Yeah, I mean. He said uh, women weren't funny. Oh, well, that was right. bad. Too. Yeah. That was bad. Yeah. And Mandy's the proof. In terms of raunchiness, I mean, I my barometer is always does something 
surprise me and doesn't make me laugh. And I think one of the reasons that the extreme raunchiness can be such a turnoff is that it is this desensitization Mm -hmm. where it's not shocking. It's not, it doesn't provide that wonderful tension relief. Right. It's shocking for shocking's sake, as opposed to somebody like Bill Bill Burr, I guess we can't mention him anymore, but Louis C.K., that they had a way of talking about... And Louis C.K. Can Louis C.K. have a... Yeah, how do these men... Can we go to... Can we have, like, can can women get together and have a little tribunal and... Well, can these guys come back? I think that anyone can come back if they are able to be okay with the harshest possible rebukes. Like, there's, there's nothing that is more attractive and more narcotic than someone who is comfortable in their own skin. And so someone being able to, which is, that's God, that's like the most perverse thing ever to say about Louis, since he was obviously very comfortable in his own skin. But what I mean is, is, is someone being able to stand up and face the excoriation and the criticism that they are facing in a kind of open-minded, even-handed way, where they, why, where they why are did, not. Why, why does he think women want to see him masturbate? Why do men think <laughs> that's a turn-off? <laughs> I just don't get it. Because it's uh, just so damn I, I think for this, I think I think for the same reason that, like for me, something that I have looked up when you know I've been looking for porn. Something that I've looked up is the Brown fantasy of. Of uh, yeah, besides uh, besides landmark uh, <laughs> court, court cases. cases, yeah, I've looked up bimboization fantasies, and for me, that comes from the intoxicating feeling of power that occurs when you feel someone's lust and you feel someone's desire. Right, I get they. So to, they think that that if they're Jerking off in front of you, you the woman's going to have lust. Yeah, I think I think that it is. I think I think I think it is a similar thrill of their objectification, and I also think that it is. I think there is also a thrilling kind of shameful weakness where you are just showing what a kind of like helpless, like you know, pathetic. Um, Needy. Yeah, exactly. Weird. There is a, there is a, yeah, there, there, there's a kind of. Oh my um, God. I wonder what. There's a kind of, that. there's a kind of like worm fetish, fetishization of, you know, this is what you, this is what you do to me. I can't, I can't help it. And, you know. And, and then there's I, Harvey Weinstein that was constantly like going into the shower and letting women look at him and. Right. Ugh. Right. I mean, yeah, I think it's, and, and, and I think do, especially do you, with like a Harvey Weinstein who never felt attractive, you know, it is, I mean, everything is always about the gaze, right? You know, the female gaze, the male gaze, and, do you, you do know, you want, I, do you, would you want to gaze at me in the no, shower, you, Daniel? You, you guys are making me so sick to my stomach. Oh, like, so I'm, the, I'm the prude. <laughs> I don't want to imagine, I don't want to she imagine. She has a repressed desire to watch. I, I don't want to imagine Ruth Ginsburg coming up on one of those Mandy porn circles. Okay, but, uh, but how we're going to have Mandy in the shower. No. Okay. Well, you're well, getting kinky. The, no, I think no, I think okay. we have to. Sorry, here, man. Here's the thing I want to say about that is that I think that the reason why 
it is crucial to, if not get into, you know, kind of like revolting specifics like we are right now, there is I don't find a it very... Revolting. There I, is I a, well, uh, well, oh, oh, oh Weinstein. I mean, no, for, I was talking about for, 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 in the shower. <laughs> I just mean for 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 anyone who might find anything, because everyone has their own comfort level. So you know, someone even just saying the word masturbation that might be revolting to them. I think that there is a crisis that has emerged, which is an unsolvable crisis, which is that the entire reason we are in this mess with sex and shame is because we do not know how to talk about it. And so because of this desire to not talk about these uncomfortable things, that is why predators are kept sheltered. Oh, 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 now I have, I have a great idea for your next article in The Daily Beast. You have to interview this I guess he's a psychiatrist, Fred Berlin, and he's at Johns Hopkins, or he was, and he studies male sexual disorders. And during the Me Too period, I just saw this very brief segment on CNN, and everyone was deploring everything as they should. But then he said, just sort of quietly, we need better outreach for men who have psychiatric disorders, because if you look at the data, like on flashers and exhibitionists Mm -hmm. and voyeurs, it's almost all men. Mm-hmm. Not very many, tiny, tiny percentage, but there there are ways to help. Of course, child predation, all of that. There are ways to help them. And he just suggested there should be more information available for people so they do not commit crimes. But anyway. Okay, well, well I, I, be think, the, I, th- sorry, I think there should be more. I think there should be more information for both because, I mean, if you look at the very first article or the second article, I guess, that I wrote for the Daily Beast about sextortion, this is an epidemic where seven-year-old kids' webcams are getting hacked, they're having pictures taken of them, and then people are blackmailing them into performing other sexual acts on camera. And all of this happens because we refuse to talk about sex. And we are so uncomfortable to talk about it with our kids, and we want to protect them. But in reality, we're not protecting anybody. Well, you you have no discomfort that way, Mandy, which is (laughs) one of the things that's very impressive about you. And you you are so brave to you lean into danger, you lean into crazy situations. And, and before you go, we know you <laughs> and go you, train. And you've challenged the sisterhood. Right. That's your latest yeah. dangerous and, and we know you don't drink, but since we do have to put up a cocktail, if you would drink one or if you were a human yeah, cocktail, yeah, yeah. No, which I'm one would you be? To... Sex on the beach? God. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. Sex on the beach? Oh, geez. Yeah. What or what's even? the other one? Uh, no sex on the beach? In Colada? Well, I would say, I would say the fondest memories that I have are of Bombay Sapphire Ooh, gin with uh, gin and tonics and a nice cut lime. Or, you know, if you want to fall off the bar stool, you know, maybe Maker's. Come yeah. Or, oh, no, I don't. Uh, gin yeah, and tonics, okay. you're coming to my house because that's my favorite drink, too. <laughs> and I'm going to have a Benson I mean, the and Hedges. I well, thank you, Mandy. It's been great hanging out with you. Mandy Statmiller is the author of Unwifeable, a memoir. She's been femsplaining on the femsplainers. And Christina and I will be back after this because now you guys are sending us questions on social media and we want to address some of those. But thank you, Mandy, for joining us and good luck with the thank book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Love you, Mandy. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks a lot.
That was kind of an orgy of stories. I thought I loved her. Yeah, she was more. You know what? She was more political than I thought she was. She's going not to political.、Be. She just happened to marry a Republican. No, but I was interested because her book does not go so much into feminism. The book itself is just. Very much a memoir, very racy, unwifeable. It, it is such a good book, and especially for people—well, for two types of people: people who just want to read something fascinating and be glad they escaped it, sort of Pornhub on paper, yeah. <laughs> and then for people who are really suffering, men or women, because she she has a very good heart. Right. She's a wonderful girl. I mean,、right. as I said before, as I was reading this, I just wanted to be an angel and come in and tell her, "You're beautiful. You're brilliant. You're funny. You don't need this." Right. No, and that's that's definitely her message. If you do respect yourself, young ladies, you won't be doing this. You know, Danielle. Since we talked to Mandy, two comedians have created a firestorm. Roseanne sent out a notorious tweet. One of several, if several, I recall. Yes. <laughs> a year of notorious tweets, really. And then Samantha B responded by calling Roseanne.、Uh, no, it wasn't Roseanne. It was the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump. She called Ivanka.、Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, she sent out a tweet calling Ivanka a four-letter word that starts with C and ends with T and is not coat. I'm not saying what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in fact so bad that we, we actually don't even、it. want to say. No, it. We don't say it on Fem's Planner. We don't say it really anywhere. And she called Ivanka this, as everyone knows, in reaction to the president's policies on separating children at the border from their parents, illegal immigrants. So all of the media is focused on these these two women and their feuds, and a rather important issue about children and their parents and immigration is left by the wayside. Well, it's true, but I think you know we were talking about this very issue with Mandy about the horrible language now. Oh yes, of of comedy. So I reached out to her actually via Twitter since we spoke and asked her if she had a take on the Roseanne. The Roseanne Samantha B controversy. So she wrote this back. I can read it to you from a direct message. She said, "I'm a fan of both Roseanne and Samantha B, and I don't think that comedians should have their shows canceled because of mob influence to do so. As humans, we make errors. I don't believe Roseanne is a racist. I don't believe Samantha B is a misogynist. They are human beings who are using their freedom of speech to push the limits of comedy. Both cases were distasteful, and they both apologized." Freedom of speech sometimes results in huge, spectacularly offensive failure, but that's a right that I think should always be protected. How do you react to that, Christina? <laughs> well, it's not exactly a freedom of speech issue. I mean, people can be socially isolated, <laughs> and you know, people disapprove of them. They're not violating their right to speech. They're showing disapproval, and you know, Roseanne's tweet was offensive. And I don't know that her show should have been canceled, and that it's beyond you know. There's no way to apologize because I do agree with Mandy that there should be some pathway <laughs> to forgiveness. If she maybe she was drinking, or I don't I think, know. I think you mentioned that you thought she's she's clearly mentally disturbed. I think she's mentally disturbed. I mean, she has. I, I don't know. I don't want to diagnose、yeah. someone from afar, but there has been a history of you know hysterical behavior. Well, and she's. I think it's also one of those things that ABC, unable to get her off her phone or make it a condition of doing the show that she has to stop tweeting because she was really circulating crazy conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic stuff. It, she's was, been an anti-Semite. Then she then she was a Zionist for a while. <laughs> no, I think she's she's clearly I, nuts. And and so I th- I think I don't know that the cancellation was 
you know, wrong in that case. Samantha Bee did not get her show canceled. She did apologize. And I think that's right. I think, as you say, it's not about the right to free speech. It's just about something, maybe it's like social comportment. Have we lost the idea of what is acceptable in public discussion? And when Samantha Bee resorts to that kind of language, I think, you know, when they go low, don't let's join them in the low. Let's, no, don't let's, go along with it. Don't and, go along and with it. And sanction it in Be a way. And that. also, just what happened to minimal civility? And there are so many ways to show disapproval and insult people very right. effectively without being vulgar and crude and taking yourself to I mean, level. I have the right to say that dress makes you look fat, but I would never do it. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be rude. No, it doesn't, Christina. Do you, you are, are you great. <laughs> I do think I look fat. I, oh, you I, don't. <laughs> You've got mail. We're now getting social media questions and comments. Oh, social media questions and comments. And we really want to encourage people to do this because we would love, love, love to hear from you. On iTunes. Yeah, ideally post your questions on the iTunes Femsplainer site, but we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. So please also don't hesitate to send your questions there. So I have one comment from Twitter and then I have a question for us. So Melanie Notkin, who oh, I is, love her. I know she's she she wrote a memoir called Otherhood about the modern generation of women who wanted social, economic, and political equality and love and marriage and motherhood, but remained single and childless. Oh. And otherhood is about not being mothers not by choice. Oh. Yeah. And she said she said it wasn't about delay, but simply waiting for love. It's what Betty Friedan wanted for us. Feminist feminism could include feminine desires too. Yes. That was sort of sweet. So th- that was a really nice conversation we had on Twitter and she quoted her book, but the book is Otherhood by Melanie Notkin. Thank you, Melanie, for reaching out to us. And then the question, of course, comes from a man, a mansplainer. Oh, God. You have so many men following you on Twitter. I yes. Guess. And I love you guys. Don't, <laughs> it's problematic for Danielle, but not for me. No, it's just kind of a male form. I'm a little No, jealous. because the male, no, jealous. you're jealous? Oh, no, but I'm the men jealous. are in trouble right now. More than I know. Me. I know. Okay, so this is from Adam Whitaker. He said, one thing I'd love to hear about is why feminists want to colonize male creativity rather than come up with their own stuff. Female Doctor Who, talk of a female Bond, etc. I would throw in female Ghostbusters. Yeah, Ghostbusters. I love characters like Ellen Ripley, says Adam, but it drives me crazy when they want to muscle in on male successes. What do you say to Adam, Christina? Okay, fair and unfair question. Because in some sense, women aren't muscling in. They're just there. So there are fantastically brilliant women in biology, in social psychology, in every field. However, women did not invent these fields, partly because they were not allowed to, but now they are. So the legitimate part of his question is, I'm tired of the whining. Like, oh, they leave us out. They don't. No, but it's like apprehension. Like, why do you need a female James Bond? Yeah, I don't know. Make your your own stories. I mean, you had, for example, African-Americans were excluded and left out and left behind, but then quietly created jazz. And became, it became the envy of the right. world. And you, you find similar things with other groups. And so women, the ones that they, oh, we're left behind, we can't, then be irresistible. Oh, be, be original. Undeniable be and, original. And invent, you know, and so go somewhere and then make men want to follow you the way that, you know, well, Benny Goodman could not succeed unless he brought 
African-American jazz musicians into his band. So you're saying women should bring the culture, their own culture entertainment. I think they've done it, and it's called The Chick Flick. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I, like. but I would also say that I don't like anything creative that's a ripoff or derivative. So, yeah, don't we don't need a female James Bond. Just, Let's just come up with our own great female fabulous and that, that men writer. will want men will want to imitate men will want to be oh. like mm. no come on now you're no now you're making men like no, no, no. can't we just <laughs> have our own heroes and heroines can we say heroines anymore and not related to drugs not related to drugs <laughs> uh, like have you okay all right oh. we're ending thank you adam thank you melanie thank you all of you we've uh, got to have the velvet underground music that heroine song Thank you, Christina. Okay, I'm um, out <laughs> And please continue to reach out to us, and thank you. Bye. And then we have the heroin song. <laughs> you know the song? <laughs> Don't know Just where I'm going